Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 137, John the 15th. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, if you remember from last week, we ended with the anti-Pope Boniface VII seizing power again in Rome and having Pope John XIV murdered. Boniface himself didn't last very long in this final stint as anti-Pope in Rome. He died in 985, and to show how popular he was, his body was dragged through the streets by the people, which led to the election of today's Pope, John XV. John XV was a Roman. He was the cardinal priest of the Church of San Vitale. We aren't sure exactly how he was elected, but he seems to have at least initially been favored by the Crescenzi family. And we've kind of mentioned them here or there for a couple of episodes. They're part of one of these factions in Rome that dominated the politics of the city at the time, where one family or another sought to control every aspect of Roman society. And at this point, the people in the Ascension were the Crescenzi. Now, regardless of how he got elected sometime in 985, John XV was elected and consecrated Pope. Now, shortly thereafter, the current head of the Crescenzi family, who is conveniently for us named Crescentius, seized power completely in Rome, proclaiming himself patrician of Rome and basically functioning as dictator on and off for the next decade. We experienced something like this earlier with the Tuscolani family, who, if you remember, consisted of Marozia, Theophylact, Albrecht I and II. Albrecht II was also called Patrician of Rome, and he was also basically the dictator over Rome and over the papacy. And that was ended thanks to the power of the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. And that seems to be the pattern with these things. When local factions seize control, the popes appeal to the Holy Roman Emperors or other outside powers to step in and help give them freedom from these petty dictatorships. But in this case, with John XV, the current ruler Otto III was still a small child, and his mother, a Byzantine princess, was calling the shots in Germany and wasn't very concerned about Rome. They were also relatively weak politically because this is new in Otto III's reign, and they were unable to quell, at least at start, uh, Crescentius in Rome. With Crescentius in power, John really had very little room to act on his own. Some of the chronicles of the time accused John of being greedy and seeking bribes for favors. But when you actually read the documents and see what happened, it's pretty clear that it wasn't John but Crescentius, who's the dictator, who asked for bribes. If you wanted to come and see the Pope and plead your cause for something, you would come. And then Crescentius would send his minions and say, you better pay up me first before you're going to do anything. Now, this leads us to one of the big disputes at the time, and that's the case surrounding the Archdiocese of Rheims in France. And we need to step back and see the whole picture, because this is going to shape the next couple of episodes. If you remember from past episodes, France and Germany for a while now have been ruled by the descendants of Charlemagne. Charlemagne had created the great Carolingian Empire, uniting Germany, France, northern Italy, Spain, all under one control. And he was very good to the papacy. But there was a flaw in his way of governing, and that was that rather than pass his power, his crown, and all his titles down to his eldest son and keep it undivided, he divided it amongst all his sons. And that pattern continued for several generations. And so by this point, the once great Carolingian Empire has been broken into several feuding kingdoms. Eventually, Germany falls away from the Carolingians and becomes the territory of the Ottonian family, Otto I, Otto II, now Otto III. But in France, there was still a Carolingian king, Louis V. 
He's eight generations removed from Charlemagne. And helpfully for us, he has a nickname, Louis the Do-Nothing. That helps us to remember what he did. He did nothing. He was fairly impotent, and his kingdom was basically ruled by his nobles, and he was a figurehead. Some of his nobles supported the Germans. They were more pro-Otto, and some were against the Germans, and they were led by a noble named Hugh Capit. A lot of conflict between these factions occurred surrounding the Archdiocese of Reims, and the battle for who was the Archbishop of Reims turned out to be a proxy for these larger conflicts and divisions in the country of France. Well, on May 21st, 987, Louis V, the last of the Carolingian kings of France, died falling from his horse in a hunting accident. And all these conflicts now are going to come to the surface. Some wanted Louis not to be the last Carolingian king. Some wanted his uncle, Charles, to be king, including Charles himself. But a lot of the clergy backed Hugh Capit, including our old friend Gerbert of Aurillac. If you remember him, he was the young genius mathematician and monk that we met a couple episodes ago. Hugh was duly elected by the nobles and became the first Capetian king of France, and his descendants are going to last basically up until the French Revolution. Now, Charles obviously wasn't too happy, so he decided to strengthen his own position by capturing the town of Reims. Now, this really upset Hugh, and for good reason. I mean, Charles has just captured the most important town, one of the most important towns anyway in France, but it doubly upset Hugh because Hugh had just used his influence to get the Archbishop of Reims, a man named Arnulf, his job. And now Hugh thought that Arnulf had backstabbed him and had let Charles in, which it turns out is true. He did. He had his servants go and open the gates before Charles's army. So Hugh wrote a letter complaining to the Pope about this stupid backstabbing bishop and the whole situation. And in fact, he threatened Arnulf in the letter, and he threatened the Pope to remove Arnulf or else. Horace Mann gives us the text of the letter, and here's one little snippet. Hugh writes, Hence do you who hold the place of the apostles decree what must be done against this second Judas, that the name of God may not be blasphemed by me, and that inflamed by a just resentment and your silence, I may not devise ruin against the city and province. And what is he saying there? He's basically saying, if you don't do something, I'm going to get so angry that I'm going to both blaspheme God and I'm going to attack and lay waste the territory around Reims and Arnulf himself. And it won't be my fault because it's your fault for allowing me to get so angry and for not doing what I told you to do. Now, the opposite side in the whole conflict also sent letters. They sent bribes for Crescentius, and Hugh thought it was because of the bribes that the Pope eventually decided against him. But it may just be that Hugh had written such an insulting letter. Who knows? Anyway, in the end, Hugh captured Rems in April of 991, and he called a synod of bishops, a small synod of French bishops there, and they had Arnulf deposed. Arnulf's defenders said that the king didn't have the authority, and that was reserved to the Pope alone, which makes sense. But in that argument, he didn't succeed, and Arnulf lost. He confessed that he did order the gates of the city open, and he resigned. And then the king slashed this synod, chose Gerbert of Aureliac to be consecrated the next Archbishop of Rems. But Arnulf would not go quietly, and once out of the control of Hugh, he appealed to the Pope, and this story isn't over. Pope John sent a representative who brought together a synod in the town of Mutzen in the summer of 995. And apparently he had first invited the bishops to come to Aachen in Germany, and then they refused, and then to come to Rome, but they refused, and so finally he said, okay, we'll have a council in France, We don't really know what happened at this council, but there was a second council held later at Rems, and at this council, Gerbert was officially condemned. 
partially because the bishops were against him, partially because in 996, Hugh Capet, who was his patron in this case, had died. But Gerbert made a couple of trips to Rome to try and plead his cause, and we'll have to wait on those and then the completion of our story for next week. A couple of quick notes in the meantime before we get to the end. One really cool thing that happened during John XV's pontificate was the first known formal canonization of a saint. Up to this point, if a saint was declared a saint, it was because of an organic process that happened in the local area surrounding where the saint was buried or where the saint worked. So you had a martyr in your town, you had a really holy man or woman in your town, they would be buried, you would start praying at their tomb, all the people would start praying at their tomb, they'd start holding festivals on the day that they died, and there would be miracles that happened, and now all of a sudden this person's a saint. But it wasn't a formal process in Rome like it is today, with all the different descriptions of miracles and research and things that go into it. And so this is the first time in which that formal process seems to have happened. The Pope, in January of 993, called a synod in Rome, and at that synod they presented the virtues of the great Ulrich, Bishop of Augsburg, and they declared him a saint and held him up for public veneration. St. Ulrich had died only a couple of decades before, and he had been renowned as a holy reforming bishop in a time where we needed holy reforming bishops. Now, John likewise worked hard diplomatically to end the war between the English king Ethelred the Unready and Richard I of Normandy. He was known for peace and for desiring peace and for working for peace. He sent envoys to both rulers, and his efforts bore fruit, and the war was averted. But now, finally, we have to conclude the story, because in the meantime, while all this stuff is going on, this fight over Rems, all these other different things, Crescentius is taking more and more power in Rome, but it's not going to work out for him in the end. He had been so insistent on exercising total control that he drove Pope John XV out of the city and straight to Otto III's nobles. And John asked for help from the German king, and now he was more inclined to give it. Otto III was a little older, but he was also headstrong and youthful still, and he recognized that the tyranny of Crescentius was not good for the papacy nor for Europe. So Otto started preparing an army to come down to Rome. Now, Crescentius at once realized that he had really messed up. He had angered someone who had way more power than him, and he was in a bind. So he sent his nobles and asked them and asked them to go to John and beg and beg and beg and apologize and have the Pope come back to Rome, which he did. But that still didn't stop Otto, who not only wanted to help the Pope, but also wanted the Pope to crown him Holy Roman Emperor. And so Otto marched on Italy in 996. But unfortunately, John died of a fever before Otto arrived just before Easter Sunday, 996. We're not sure where he's buried, but he was succeeded by our first German Pope, Gregory V, and we'll talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com, or you can find us on iTunes. Thank you, and God bless you.